right. If you have your Bibles, grab them. Acts chapter 15 is where we'll be this morning. Acts chapter 15. As we continue walking through Acts, Acts chapter 15. We're going to read verses 1 through 21 uh, to kick us off here. As we read this, Luke is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as Luke writes, he writes the very words of God. He says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's going to be important. Remember that. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, uh, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate... Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth and, uh, and the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their, cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is the same word for Simon, so Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this words of the prophet agree, just as, is it, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, and the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of the Lord. Now, many people uh, claim that they do not go to church, not maybe because they don't believe in God or Christianity, but because, man, they are tired of going to churches where there is bickering and fighting and division. Now, while all churches are not the same, churches in general have seemed to gotten this bad reputation uh, for fighting and dividing uh, often over silly things. 
There is a reason why people talk about churches splitting over the color of the carpet. That's because churches have split over the color of the carpet. Enough times that it's become the cliche saying. And it's sad to think about how many churches have started because of a split. Churches have split over music styles, uh, over removing the pews and going to chairs, uh, over the color of the wall. I even read this week about churches that split because uh, some didn't think the pastor should have a beard. Now, don't y'all come at me with that. Because the last time I shaved my beard off, I had someone tell me that, that I was their pastor and they couldn't respect me if I looked 12 years old. So don't come at me on the beard thing. One church I read this week split over an argument about whether when they had their meal, their fellowship meal time, whether they should call it a pot luck or a pot blessing. I ain't making this up. It's real. Now, one of my favorite stories was about this church that had this big party, big, big fellowship thing going on, and everybody's bringing food because it was a potluck, and everybody's bringing food. Well, two, two ladies in the church both happened to bring homemade fried chicken, and these two older ladies happened to not really like each other, and they both brought fried chicken on that day. And so the pastor, unaware, that, you know, these ladies are already kind of irritated that, you know, she brought fried chicken too. I can't believe it. But the pastor, unaware, he's going through the, the potluck buffet line, and he's just getting food, and he grabs fried chicken from one particular plate, not really understanding the tension, and he eats the fried chicken, he's sitting down, and he happens to make the comment, man, this is like the best fried chicken I've ever had. Well, next, the next week, half his members were gone, because the lady whose fried chicken it wasn't rounded up a bunch of people and said, we got to go to the other church. Yeah, that's a true story. While many of these issues are pretty silly and pretty funny, particularly from our vantage point on this side of things, in reality, these are tragic situations that tear churches apart and ruin our witness to the world. Our text this morning that we just read is about really the first real conflict in the church. There have been some little conflicts. You remember like when God killed those two people for stealing money and, or not giving all the money, and whatever. Well, we've had some little conflicts, but this is like the first real serious that kind of threat that really threatens to split the church. An issue so big that it, had this gone poorly, the church could have split and divided and we'd have had ramifications to today where we might have had two different kind of churches of thought. It had devastating consequences. I think the story has a, has a lot to teach us this morning. Uh, when I was studying and reading it this week, it just rocked me, honestly. Like, and I think this passage is really important and incredibly practical. And while we may not be worried about splitting over the color of the carpet here at Fellowship Baptist Church because we don't really have carpet, uh, we need to learn what is worthy of our disagreement. What is worthy uh, to fight over? What should we fight over? <laughs> Get some carpet. We're going to fight because we don't have carpet. We need to see that there are some issues, some conflicts worth fighting over, worth conflict, worth splitting over maybe even. And there are some issues that are just worth laughing about. So verses 1 and 2, go back and look at the top. It says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching, and so here's the issue, Teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, I'm going to assume y'all know what that means. I'm not going into detail. 
according to the custom of Moses. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay? Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. I love the way Luke phrases the nature of this disagreement, that they had no small dissension and, and, and disagreement and debate. It's, it's like Luke's way of putting this positive spin or bringing down the temperature. Like, yeah, they were arguing. It, it, wasn't no, it, it, was, no, it was no small dissension, like, well, no small debate. But understand, this issue has arisen in the church, and Paul and these other leaders, are they're fired up about it. Like there is this dissension, there is this arguing going on between brothers and sisters. The first thing I want you to understand this morning is that there is conflict worth having. There is some conflict that is worth having. There are scores of things that we should not fight about. There are, they could write books about the things we should not fight about. Things we should let roll off our back. There are issues that are small enough that, that we should not worry about them for the sake of unity and love in the church. But understand there are some issues, there are some fights, some disagreements worth having. So what are they? What issues are okay and good and right for us to have conflict about? Understanding this first major conflict in Acts 15, I think, gives us the answer. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved unless you're circumcised. So there's this group of people who have been teaching and advocating that unless these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, have to, unless they practice Jewish customs, like being circumcised and following the food laws and other things, Unless they become Jews first, they cannot become Christians. they got to become Jews and then become Christians, or they cannot be saved. Understand, these are not religious Jews saying this. These are Jews who have become Christians themselves. These are people who grew up in Judaism but have forsaken that, followed Jesus, become Christians, but they are still hanging on to the laws and customs of the Old Testament. And they think that faith in Christ is not enough. Faith in Christ's grace is not enough. You have to observe Jewish laws, Jewish customs, be circumcised and other things before you might have faith and receive grace from Jesus. See, basically they're saying Jesus plus circumcision equals salvation. Jesus plus following the laws of the Old Testament equals salvation. So why is this such a problem? It is a problem because this is an issue where the gospel is at stake. This is an issue where our witness is at stake, where what can save people is at stake. You see, to change the gospel is to change the very nature of salvation and how people come to know Christ, how their lives are changed. And so this is a really, really big deal. This is a really, really big problem. And it is a problem worth fighting over. History shows us that this is not the last time issues like this were fought over. In 1517, Martin Luther would nail his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church, starting a fight with the Catholic Church over the nature of salvation. He would fight with them that you didn't have to buy indulgences from the church to go to heaven, that you don't have to be baptized by the church as a baby to go to heaven. You don't have to confess your sins to a priest to go to heaven. You don't have to do penance uh, for your sins. But because Luther was willing to fight over these issues, the church was able to to form new churches that believe that salvation was by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone. And nothing that we can do because he was willing to fight over this. Honestly, though, it's still an issue today. Like, it's still an issue even in Protestant churches, right? 
where we still kind of believe that there are things we've got to do before we can be saved. Like some people might say, you know, you've got to be baptized. There are certain denominations that would say, yeah, unless you're baptized, you can't be saved. There are some people that would say, you know, you've got to go to church or you've got to, you know, look so spiritual or do these things. Uh, when I was a youth pastor, we had a deacon that, in our deacons meeting. He got, he got all fired up and mad because we were, all, we were baptizing people left and right. People were coming to faith left and right. But he was like, why, are, why, why aren't they walking the aisle? Why aren't they, why, why aren't they coming forward? I don't know. They got saved at camp, so no need. Well, yeah, but they got to come forward because that's how they declare their, their public declaration of faith. I was like, no, man, that's what the water's for. But, but he couldn't get past it because in his mind, you had to walk the aisle and come up during the invitation time to get saved. Unless you did that, you couldn't get saved. And he was adding something like circumcision to salvation. He couldn't get past it. How often do we believe that if you want to come to Christ, you got to do something first. Like you want to come to Christ, you got to clean up your life first. If you want to come to Christ, you got to get your life straight first. How often do we think that or say that or talk like that? Do we believe that Jesus plus something equals salvation or Jesus plus nothing else equals salvation? And how many people end up not even trying Jesus, not even tasting him, not even giving him a shot? Because when they look at their lives and they, they say, man, i got to clean up before I come. i got to clean my life up. i got to get right. i got to stop doing these things before I can go into the church. Man, I, I had someone tell me recently that they would, if they walked into a church, they would be struck down by, when they walked across the doorway. It's like, man, that ain't true. That ain't true. Because I'm just as dirty as you are, just as sinful as you are, just as much need to clean up in my life than you. Let's all go and bathe in grace together. But often when people think they've got to clean up their life before they can come to Jesus, they never come because they never get there. They never arrive. They never are clean enough. So what issues are worth fighting over? We should fight over issues where the gospel is at stake. We should fight over issues where the gospel is at stake. We should fight over these issues because when the gospel is watered down, when the gospel is altered, when the gospel is distorted, eternity is at stake in people's lives. If we soften on our views of the cross, that Jesus' blood and death are what washes away our sins, if we soften on our views that the resurrection is historical and literal, if we soften on the Bible being the authoritative and errant and fallible word of God, if we soften on the necessity for someone to respond in faith and repentance, if we soften on the biblical understanding of sin and what sin is, and if we capitulate to the culture and, and, and water down what sin is, if we soften on the wrath of God, if we soften on the goodness and righteousness of God to judge the world and judge every human being and render them innocent under the blood of Christ or guilty in their sin, then understand that people around us, they might come to church and hear a message that is encouraging, hear a message that is uplifting. They might hear a practical message about five ways to make their marriage better. But they will not hear a message that can save them from their worst enemy, their worst problems of sin and death. And they will wake up one day in an eternal hell wondering why that encouraging Christian message did not save them. And the answer will be simple because it was not a Christian message at all. See, when the gospel is at stake, we must fight because eternity is at stake. We don't fight over the color of carpet. We do fight over the gospel. 
This is such a big deal that in Galatians chapter 1, Paul would say that if anyone preaches to you a different gospel, if anyone tries to tell you there's another way to be saved, even if an angel from heaven comes down and tries to tell you another way, let him be anathema, cut off from Christ. So when the Mormons say, an angel came and told us there's another way. No. Gospel issues are conflict worth having. Now, I want you to notice what immediately happens in verse 2. They have, Paul and Barnabas have no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas had some of those others who were appointed to go to Jerusalem, to the apostles and the elders about this question. So the issue arises, disagreement breaks out, there's arguing and debate going on, and what do they immediately do? They leave and go to Jerusalem to deal with the issue in person. They travel over 200 miles from where they currently are so that they can get in a room with people from all over the known world to solve the problem. They confront the issue face to face. Now, why is this so important to bring up? It is important because, man, we are bad at this. We are bad, and I can say that because I'm bad at this. Because, like me, we, we hate conflict. Right? We hate it, particularly interpersonal conflict. And so if we were honest for a minute, if we're honest with each other, most of our conflicts are not about gospel issues. Most of our arguing and fighting isn't about gospel issues. It's about secondary issues. It's about issues of opinion, about issues of hurt feelings, because you didn't go with my swash for the color of the carpet. You went with hurts, fried chicken. When we have these issues, when, when we have conflict over these secondary issues even, smaller issues, how often do we respond? I think in my experience, in my observation, there are three ways that we often respond when we have conflict. The first is we gossip about it. Whenever we have conflict with someone else, man, what do we want to do? We want to go talk about it. We want to go talk about it because we want to talk about it with our friends because what happens when we talk about our conflict with our friends? Man, I can't believe what they did. I just can't believe they'd do that to you. I can't believe they'd think that. They, they build you up and they say the things that you want them to hear. No, they didn't. No. Well, I wouldn't stand for it. I'd say, you know what I'd do? I'd say this. I, and so we, we talk about it and we hear our friends affirming us. And we listen to them and it makes us feel better. But it leaves the conflict unresolved and the relationship between us and the person strained. You see, gossip never solves our conflicts. It just makes us feel better temporarily. It is like a drug. It's like a dopamine hit. It brings this temporary high, this this temporary uh, relief, but it slowly fades away, leaving us exactly where we started. The second thing we do when we have conflict is we stew on it. Uh, y'all, I don't know about you, but this is my sinful response of choice when I am in conflict with someone. Man, I will replay conversations in my head over and over and over again a million times. I start having conversations with that person that I haven't even had yet. And, man, we're arguing, and I'm always winning the arguments. Y'all know what I'm saying? Like, man, their arguments are terrible in my mind because man, I'm just destroying them. And I'm going, so we're, I'm playing these things, what they said, what they might say, what's going on. I sit and I stew on it. I imagine what maybe they're thinking, what they're saying, and I grow more and more irritated, more and more frustrated, and more and more irritated at that person. And what that does 
is it creates in us more and more distance between us and the person we're in conflict with. Because now we've made up all these things. We've had all these conversations that didn't actually happen. We've replayed this conversation that we had, and now we imagine it completely different than it actually did happen. And now we're too afraid to go talk to that person because we've built this thing up into this huge mountain of an issue. And really it was, it was a lot smaller. We could have dealt with it, but now it's like really dramatic and big and huge, and we built it up because we just sat at home and stewed on it, and it's heightened. You see, stewing on our conflict takes us further from reality And it only serves to make us more angry, bitter, and frustrated. Finally, when we are in conflict for some reason, we think it will make us feel better uh, if we share our frustrations with the world for all to see on social media. And so we get frustrated when we're in conflict about something. What do we do? We go to our computer and we just start typing. And we post this long rant about our feelings, about our frustrations, and we hit sin for the world to see. And it makes us feel slightly better, especially if we get a lot of likes and positive comments. But the other thing we do is what's called subtweeting, where you're mad about something, you're in conflict with someone, but instead of saying it to the person's face, instead of going to them, you, you make this post that's kind of cryptic and oddly specific and weird, and really the only person that understands it is the person that's offended you or hurt you. And you just make this little thing. Hope they see that. Yeah, they'll see it, and they'll know, Right? You're not brave. We're not brave enough to deal with the issue head on. And so we post jabs, hoping that they see it and that they get mad and we score points. And it makes us feel better for a moment. Like, it, uh, truly it does. Like, you get this dopamine hit in your system and it, like, it's a, a little like a sugar high and you feel good for a minute. But you didn't resolve anything. Because we, we, we have to stop going to social media to solve our con- or to deal with our conflicts internally. Let me, let me give you a helpful rule that I've stolen from someone else that I think is helpful. and I'm trying to use it to inform my social media. If it's not informational or inspirational, I don't post it. It's either informational, hey, come to this event, or it's inspirational, hey, look how awesome this is. It should change your life. And if it's not one of those two things, sometimes I type it out and then I delete it. You see, posting your conflicts on social media is either gossiping or stewing on the problem, and it never is a solution. So then what do we do? Acts 15 gives us a simple and beautiful model. Paul and Barnabas have this massive conflict with a whole group of people. And what do they do? They get in a room together and they talk about it. They don't gossip. They don't stew on it. They don't write on a scroll and post it in the town center. I guess that's like their social media. They don't do that for everybody to see. They get in a room. They look each other in the eyes. They talk through the issue, and they work it out face-to-face. This is so simple, but it is so hard for some reason. Either we're scared of what the other person might say, or we're scared of what we, what, what, what we will find ourselves to be in the wrong, and maybe have to admit we were in the wrong, or something. I don't know, but for some reason, it's hard, and we don't do it. But what I've found to be true time and time again is, is when I'm in conflict with someone, that if we get into a room, if we talk through the problems, if we hear each other, if we listen, we often leave hugging, finding that the relationship is now deeper for having gone through the conflict and being healed of the conflict. One of the things that always breaks my heart is that when I have to hear from someone else, oh, you know, so-and-so is 
you hurt their feelings when you did X and such. Or so-and-so is mad at you because you did this. Or so-and-so is frustrated because of X and Y and Z. Like, oh, really? I didn't know. How, why? What? What's, what happened? Why? What, what's the issue? What's the deal? And, and then, then you wait for them to go, oh, I guess they'll come talk to me about it. Crickets. Crickets. I wait and wait. But the thing that always means so much to me is when people come to me, call me or meet with me, and they say, hey, Brent, you, you said this, or you did this, or you posted this, or you whatever, and it hurt my feelings, or, man, I disagree with this, or, or whatever. Man, because then we're able to, uh, to apologize to one another. We're able to, to clarify things. We're able to work through it. And what I try to always do when people leave that is like, I say, man, thank you for, for coming to me. Thank you. I had no idea this was a problem. Thank you for, for, for bringing this to me and not just sitting at home and stewing on it. We're always better for it. I think most people are like that. Like nobody wants you sitting at home stewing and upset at them. They want to get the problem fixed and solved so we can just move on together. Let's work it out together. Conflicts get solved when you're face-to-face. So Paul and Barnabas join the other apostles and the elders and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. They're there. Uh, they uh, are arguing uh, that the Gentiles have to be circumcised before they can be saved. And then Peter and Paul both, they, they share their experience, right? So Peter and Paul talk about how uh, God has used them to preach the gospel. They've seen Gentiles come to faith. They've seen the Spirit fall on them. They've witnessed these things. And, and so they think that it's true that the Gentiles can be saved without circumcision. They don't need to follow these Jewish customs. But what happens next is really important. So they give their experience, Paul and Barnabas and, and Peter. They share their experience, and they make this argument. They're debating and based off their experience. But then James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. So first there's conflict, and they meet face-to-face to deal with the conflict. They share their experiences and per- perspectives. They debate the issue. But the thing that puts the issue to rest is when they consult the Word of God. You see, when we have conflict, like, it's okay and it is good to share our experience, to share our feelings, to share our opinions. That is a good thing that we should do. But at the end of the day, we must conform ourselves to what God's word says. And if we find ourselves to be out of line and out of step with what God's word says, we must change. We conform to the Bible. We don't conform the Bible to us. The word of God trumps our experiences and opinions. I'll give you an example from uh, it's kind of coming back up, but really from a year ago when the pandem- p- pandemic first happened. There was all these opinions uh, on masks. Some of y'all about to get offended. Y'all ready? Do they work? Do they not work? Are they necessary? Are they pointless? Like there's a lot of legitimate good debate around all of that, right? And we can argue and talk about masks and whether or not we should wear them. Because here's the deal. The Bible is silent on whether or not you should wear a mask. There is no, like the, the, there's no first, third, third Corinthians that talks about how you should wear your mask. The Bible is silent on the issue. But that changes. That changed when the government required us to wear it. Like, we might not like it. 
We might disagree with it. We might think it's pointless. We might think it's dumb. But the Bible commands us to submit to governing authorities, whether we like them or not. And as long as the government does not call us or ask us to violate the word of God, then we submit to the governing authorities because the Bible says that submitting to governing authorities is submitting to God. According to Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. And so we conform ourselves to the Bible. And I know that's not easy, but our opinions, our facts, our experience is always trumped by the word of God, and we are to gladly submit to it whether we like it or not. It's not about whether we agree with it. It's about submitting to God's word. So when the Bible is silent on an issue, what do we do? Because the Bible, is, the Bible speaks to all sorts of things, but it doesn't speak to everything. The Bible doesn't tell us the style of music we should have on Sunday mornings. The Bible doesn't tell us how we should practice the Lord's Supper, how we should pass it out. The Bible doesn't tell us whether or not we should get the vaccine. It doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us who to vote for. Sometimes I wish it would make it easier, but it doesn't tell us. There are things that may guide those decisions in the Bible, but the Bible is silent on a lot of things. So when we have conflict about an issue, we meet face-to-face, we consult the Word, and when we find the Word to be silent, what do we do? We must, here's, here's the thing, what do we do? When the Bible is silent, we must know when to have conviction and when to show kindness. We must know when to have conviction and stand strong and firm and when to show kindness and grace. This is one of the hardest things for us to learn because, man, I feel like we just get this backward all the time. I find we are often soft on the crucial issues and we are unmoving on the things that are maybe less certain. Listen to the last verse of this section because uh, I think uh, it helps us think through this. Therefore, this is after they've had the debate and come to the conclusion. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. They shouldn't have to be circumcised. They can just come by faith. But should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. When I read this, this particular part this week, man, I was really, really struggling with this. Like really struggling. I read it over and over again. I read commentary after commentary. And I was struggling. And I think part of the reason is because, man, this is hard to hear. It's a hard truth. Like the first line is clear, right? We should not make the Gentiles do anything to come to know God. They can come by faith alone. You don't need to put, you, don't, you need Jesus and that's it. You read that and you're like, okay, cool, good decision, makes sense. But then you keep reading and it seems that the next sentence does contradict what he just said. Gentiles can come to God without having to conform to Jewish laws or customs, but they should keep these Jewish laws and customs. What? What do you mean? Jew, uh, Gentiles do not have to become Jewish, but... Kind of act Jewish. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols or eat anything strangled, yada, yada, yada. But I thought you just said we didn't have to. Why are you asking us to do it now? What are they saying? The last line makes it clear. It basically says, you do these things because there are Jews all around the world. Here's what he's saying. Because these issues are offensive and will build up a wall and a barrier between you and both believing and unbelieving Jews, They were asking these Gentiles to give up their liberty, to give up their freedom in Christ, to do these things that are completely fine for them to do. 
but instead to give up that freedom, to give up that liberty, and to follow these Jewish customs so that they might be a witness to those unbelieving Jews and they would not alienate themselves or alienate them from the gospel. You see, eating meat sacrificed to idols is not a sin. Eating meat sacrificed to idols has no power over you. It is not wrong in any way. You, you got a hamburger that, was sacrifi- that cow was sacrificed to Baal, it don't, you eat that thing. It's fine. But they were asking him to give up their freedom for the sake of others because it would build a wall between them. You see, sometimes we must not do what we have every right to do. Sometimes we're called to not do things we have every right to do, and we don't do it for the sake of our witness, for the sake of the lost, and for the sake of the unity in the body of Christ. Now, this is a concept that we as Americans particularly have a really, really hard time with because we love freedom. We're all about freedom. And we not only do we have freedom in our country, but we have freedom in Christ, right? We love freedom. We love our rights. And the idea that I should have to give up something that I have a right to do for the sake of someone who is ignorant or who is weaker, frankly, it makes us mad. Honestly, it makes us mad. You're telling me this person's an idiot and so I can't do this thing that I have every right to do because they're an idiot? Like, that's what we're saying. But isn't that who we are? Isn't that who we're supposed to be, at least, as the church? That we are the ones who give up of ourselves, the ones who die to ourselves, who give up our rights for the sake of others? That we take up our cross, we sacrifice, we give up freedom and liberty for the sake of others? And is this not what Jesus has done for us? The the one who had every right to sit in judgment over us had every right to stay in heaven and leave us to our own devices. Instead, gave up his glory and throne, gave up his rights to those things, came to earth, sacrificing his rights to be worshipped and obeyed by people, and instead was ridiculed and murdered by them so that he might deliver us. Jesus laid down his rights for us, and sometimes we must do the same in order to show love and honor and care for other people. So what does that look like? Sometimes... I'll see something on the news or I'll see someone else's post or something's going on in the world. And, man, my first thought is, man, i got to get on, on the socials and i gotta, I got to put my opinion out there. And i got to type and i got to tell everybody what I think. And I delete it. <laughs> Giving up our rights for our witness or for, the, or for unity sometimes means giving up our right, our right to voice our opinions loudly. And immediately on social media. Even if it means that we don't get to take part in that next juicy debate, and even if the void of our silence is now filled filled by less informed and less civil voices. Sometimes, man, we might have a right to be mad about something. Like some situations happen in our life, and like there's a legitimate reason that we have to be angry. Sometimes we have that, right? Sometimes we have every right and the freedom to be angry about a situation. Sometimes we should lay down that right for the sake of unity. We should lay down that right for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of forgiveness. We lay down the right that we have to be angry and extend forgiveness. Sometimes it might mean that while you have the right to drink alcohol, the Bible never condemns drinking alcohol. It only condemns drunkenness. And while you have the right to drink alcohol and the freedom in Christ to drink alcohol, maybe you are around a weaker brother and you lay down that right for their good. You give up your freedom for their good. For me, growing up, this may be a surprise to you, but growing up, I was a redneck. Maybe that's not a surprise. I don't know. 
I was a redneck, or at least I wanted to be for some reason. Hunting, fishing, dirt biking was my life, and it was my brand. And that meant I had to wave my Confederate flag up in my window, out my door for all to see proudly. And as I grew up and I supported that and, and, and you know, wore the shirt that said, if, you, if this flag offends you, you, you need a history lesson, yada, yada, yada. I made the arguments to people that this flag wasn't racist, that it was a part of my heritage. And while personally I think those arguments are now wrong, whether right or wrong really isn't the issue at hand. Laying down our liberty and our freedom for the sake of others means, while I have a right to fly a flag, to fly the Confederate flag or any other flag, I have a right to do so. Doing so may not be beneficial. It might build a wall between me and people I'm called to love and serve. It might build up a barrier. And while I might argue that you shouldn't be offended by this, while I might have all the facts and all the logic that might say you shouldn't be offended by this, that's not the issue. The issue is that it may build a wall between me and my black brothers and sisters. We don't want to build walls. We want to build bridges. And so I gladly sacrifice my rights fly any flag for the sake of my brothers because we should love people more than our rights we should love people more than our rights and man we hate this like some of y'all right now mad that i just said that because y'all love your confederate flag it's my right my freedom you can't take that away from me i can do whatever i want i'm free they're wrong man i feel like that more often than i care to admit I love my rights. I want to do what I want to do, and I want dumb people to stop getting on to me for what I want to do. And it's true. You are free. You can do whatever the heck you want to do with your rights. Just as Christ, though, gave up his life, gave up his rights for us, so are we called to give up ours, to lay them down, to lay down our freedom and our liberty for the sake of others so that the gospel might advance unhindered. We want the gospel to offend people, nothing else. The gospel is offensive enough. We don't need to put anything else on it. So let me sum up this sermon in a single phrase. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. There are things worth fighting about. But they are big gospel issues. Not small secondary issues. It is okay. Listen, guys, it's okay for us to disagree about small things. Our, our, over music style, over whether or not the Bengals have any shot at being good this year. We can disagree about that. In the essential things, we've got to be united, unmoving, together. But in non-essentials and secondary issues and opinions, we have liberty. We can disagree with each other and still be friends. It's okay. We can have different opinions about all kinds of things and be okay. Shoot, me and Ron Gervin are best buddies, and every time we go to lunch, we can't help but argue about Revelation. And we love it. It's great. He's wrong, but it's great. <laughs> and he thinks I'm wrong. It's great. We love each other. We're good buddies, and we disagree, and who cares? But we disagree face-to-face. He's right there. We disagree face-to-face and not in secret. Sometimes a loving thing to do is to swallow our pride and let go of our right to something to let go of our righteous indignation, to let go of our need to be right. 
And that one's hard for me. I like to be right. We can lay down our rights and our freedom for the sake of our witness to the world, for the sake of unity in the body of Christ, and for the sake of loving our brothers and sisters, especially those who might not be as mature as you yet. You can lay down your rights for them. Listen to this and I'm done. Life is too short. Our mission is too important. And our fellowship in our church is too sweet to let any secondary issue mess any of that up. So I will lie and tell all of you that your fried chicken is the best if I have to. But church, you are family. You're family. And everyone out there who doesn't know Jesus yet is potential family. And so let's never let secondary issues hurt our family or build a wall from someone new joining in. Let's argue, let's debate face-to-face, and let's hug, and let's keep our family intact, always. Pray. Father, this morning, we read this text, and it's just difficult for me. It's convicting for me, because I know that I want to fight over every little thing. I know I want to be right about every little thing. I want to have my rights, and I want to do what I'm allowed to do. And I, I hate it when people tell me I shouldn't do something or when what I do is misinterpreted by someone else. And, Lord, it's so hard. It's so frustrating at times. God, would you help us to, to become more and more of a church who fights over the right things, who fights and contends for the gospel, God, let's be a people who, who, when someone steps out of line and says, you know what, maybe the resurrection was just like, you know, not, maybe it's figurative. Like, let's pounce on that and be passionate about that and jump on that. When we disagree about the key the song was played in, or the color we painted the walls, or how we went about this or that in our life, God, help us to see those things as opinions and let's love each other through them. Help us to be a church that loves each other through our disagreements. One of the things that makes the church beautiful is that we're unified around Christ and his throne despite our differences, despite our disagreements over a a whole sort of thing. God, help us to be a church that is so united and knows how to disagree well. Help us to be a people who when we have conflict with someone, when we go to them, We make it right. Talk it through. We don't talk behind people's backs. We don't tear people down. We don't stew on it. We go to them and make it right. Help us to be that kind of people. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, I pray this morning you would show them that you sent your son who gave up his rights that that he might come and deliver us. If you're here this morning, you don't know this Jesus. Man, come talk to me. I'd love to tell you about him. If you're here this morning, you have something in your life you need to pray about, anything going on in your life, man, I'm going to be up here. We've got some guys on the side. We'd love to just pray with you, hug your neck, help you out, be there for you. Let us do that. God, give us the courage to respond how we need to. In Christ's name we pray all people said. Stand and sing.